Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Ebola panic has reached a fever pitch in the United States, uh, and it's manifested itself in some pretty ugly ways. Uh, You have members of Congress calling for travel bans to Africa in ways that would undermine the fight against the disease in West Africa. You have these crazy instances of individuals discriminating against Africans uh, for no real apparent reason whatsoever other than the fact that they are African and Ebola is in Africa. So I think it's fair to say that the Ebola outbreak has exposed Americans' general ignorance of Africa, and frankly, that has some profound policy consequences. Here with me to discuss the consequences of uh, Americans' lack of knowledge and lack of understanding and nuance of Africa is Laura Say from Colby College. Uh, Laura, you might know as at Texas in Africa, the fantastic Twitter user and fantastic commentator for the Washington Post on all things related to U.S. and Africa. She also has the distinct of being my third ever guest on Global Dispatches, where she discussed her life and career. And here she is again, my conversation with Laura Say of Colby College. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of discrimination and a lot of really unfortunate incidents where people are being treated as though they they might be diseased when there's absolutely no reason to think that they were exposed in any way to to anyone with the Ebola virus. Um, In New Jersey, we have the example of two children whose family recently moved from from Rwanda to Maple Township, New Jersey. Um, Rwanda is over 3,000 miles away from Liberia, but these children are being homeschooled for three weeks at the insistence of of the local school or the school board. It's not exactly clear. Um, Here in Maine, we have a school administrator who traveled to Dallas for a conference. Um, He didn't go anywhere near the hospital where the Ebola patients were being treated, but there's so much fear and so much misinformation that he is also, you know, being forced to stay home on 21 days paid administrative leave. I think we're seeing just a lot of examples that are, that are not grounded in in what we know about Ebola, what we know about how it's transmitted. And, And this is resulting in real discrimination against innocent people. And there was this other example I saw of a, a Nigerian student applying for admission to a university in Texas. What was that story? Yeah, so Navarro College, which is a, uh, a community college in, in Texas that has a few locations, but the headquarters is in Corsicana. This is a public institution um, that's funded by the state of Texas. Um, it's denied admission not just to Nigerians and not just to people from uh, Ebola-affected countries, but they, they seem to have adopted a blanket denying admission to anyone from Africa um, for right now, out of, out of, again, out of fear of the Ebola virus. And when, you know, officials have been asked about this by journalists, they have 
claim that this is in the best interest is, you know, this, this phrase that keeps being used, an abundance of caution. Um, but, again, there's really no reason to believe that, you know, two young Nigerians might bring Ebola. And even if they did, it's, it's you know, even if they had been exposed in some way, it's, it's for admissions for the spring semester. And the maximum incubation period for Ebola is 21 days. So there's no way um, that, that these students, you know, would, would be likely to bring it across the across the ocean and if they did why not you know work out something where you can quarantine them for that three week period and 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 just you know just be extra careful i mean i think we're seeing just a lot of irrationality and a lot of fear here so i guess to what extent do you um pin this irrationality and fear on americans general lack of knowledge or understanding of sort of africa as a giant continent I think that's a huge part of it. I think people don't realize that, you know, Africa is extraordinarily large. A lot of that goes back to the map that many of us grew up with. You know, the Mercator projection is notoriously wrong. It makes Greenland the same size as Africa, whereas the reality is that Greenland is about one-fourteenth the size of the continent. Um, people don't realize, you know, the entire United States, including Alaska, so an enormous amount of territory, could fit into Africa three times and there would still be space left over for, for more land. Um, it's just an enormous place. And, you know, talking about, well, someone might have Ebola because they live at a location three, four, five thousand miles from from the outbreak zone, I think is, is you know, shows a lot of geographic ignorance. It shows also a lack of knowledge about um, travel routes. I, I think people tend to think of Africa you know, and they haven't been there, they tend to think of it as one entity. They tend to think of it more like the United States, where people easily move from one country to another, and you can just hop a flight from Monrovia to Nairobi at any time. And um, the reality is much, much more complicated than that. It's quite difficult for most Africans to move, particularly long distances. Um, the visa requirements um, for, for people in one African country to come to another are, are extraordinarily stringent and usually pretty expensive, and it makes it cost prohibitive for people to move around. Um, but also there's just a lack of air connections. I mean, it's, it's, you can't get from there to here. It's kind of the, the eternal problem for people in Africa who need to move from one part of the continent to another. And very often you have to transit um, through Europe or through the Middle East. And so the idea that, you know, someone might have randomly brought Ebola to Rwanda directly from Sierra Leone or directly from Guinea is just incredibly far-fetched and, and not grounded in the realities of, of geography or of, of ease of travel. Um, so I guess, how do you, I mean, you've been studying uh, Africa for, for a very long time, particularly you've been studying sort of U.S. policy to Africa, official, you know, U.S. government policy to Africa. Yeah. Um, are, are there ways in which this sort of general ignorance has um affected or um, influenced U.S. policy uh, uh, over the last few years, say. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess we're seeing examples of this ig ignorance being manifest in the U.S., uh, in American citizens' panic towards the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. But, you know, I take it that over the years, um, you know, this sort of general lack of knowledge has affected, you know, official U.S. government response to events in Africa. Or has it? Sure. I mean, I, I think we see... We see patterns of that, of a lack of knowledge and, and sort of willingness to accept what you're told by a lobby group that you trust or, or by, you know, a non-governmental organization that seems to know what it's talking about. Um, we haven't really seen anything quite on the scale, though, uh, since really since HIV-AIDS um, became a concern. And, you know, 
back before we knew a whole lot about how HIV was transmitted, before there were um, treatments in place and, you know, the ARVs had, had become the kind of miracle drugs that they are now, um, we did see things like calls for travel bans um, directed not only at Africa but also at Haiti. Um, you know, a lot of sort of prejudice and, and seeing um, anybody who was coming from these countries as potentially being diseased, potentially being dirty somehow, polluted. Um, there's a long, long history of that. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now is, I mean, this, this could not have happened at a worse time. It's the, the panic has kind of hit full scale three, four weeks before a midterm election. And so politicians have an incentive to look like they're doing something and look like they're being tough on the administration if they perceive the response to be inadequate. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of these things that, you know, most scientists would say that a travel ban is probably not going to help, that, you know, quarantining people just because they're coming from these countries is, is probably not going to, to be the solution. But you kind of get these irrational policy responses out of a desire to look like you're doing something, and that's especially important right before voters are going to the polls and parties have an incentive to make the other side look bad. Yeah, I think that the UN or Ban Ki-moon and other UN officials have this um, sort of saying they like to, to invoke that you need to isolate the patients and not the country. Um, you know, and it seems to me policies that seek to cut off economically, um, you know, Liberia, Senegal, uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea would have like the opposite effect. Um, it would probably exacerbate the crisis. I mean, you know, I guess to me, it, it seems like people forget that the most of the people who are dying from this disease are, of course, from West Africa, but most of the people who are fighting the, the disease by far are also from West Africa. And to the extent that you undermine their faith in their own governments more than they've already been undermined uh, by imposing restrictions like a travel ban that would undermine their economies, that you, you really risk exacerbating this crisis even further. Absolutely. And you risk, you know, not being able to get aid workers into the theater to, to work on the issue. You risk not having cargo space for necessary materials that protect both international and local health workers. Um, we've already, you know, heard, I mean, Brussels Airlines is one of the few airlines that's still flying from Europe into, into Monrovia and Sierra Leone, and their cargo hold is packed. There's no room for, you know, for months on end to get these kind of supplies in. And when you are stigmatizing people, when you're acting out of these kinds of theaters, um, it can actually hinder the response that will stop. The, the epidemic, it can actually make things much, much worse. And I think that's a big concern that um, many folks at the UN and many international actors, and including people in the United States government, have and have repeatedly expressed, you know, that we really, it would really be great if some of these commercial airlines would, would start flying again and start facilitating the flow of aid um, in a way that would, would help to resolve the crisis once and for all. Um, I guess, you know, you're, you're a professor and, and a teacher. I guess, to what extent do you see this as like a teaching moment or a teachable moment about Africa to an American audience? And um, I guess, what are you doing to try to sort of, you know, help, you know, Americans are finally focused on Africa. How could this moment be seized to present a more nuanced and just like a, a, a more um, enlightened and uh, broadening, broadening American understanding of Africa? Yeah, I mean, I'm always trying to think about ways we can take current events and use them to teach people about Africa with my own students. Um, I have students who are in Liberia this summer as interns. Um, they're starting to find out about friends they made at their internships and, and in their daily lives who died of, of Ebola. And 
are trying to think about ways to respond. So we're working on having public education events in Maine, um, ha- you know, having panels and those kinds of things, as well as fundraisers um, to help out the families of, of those who died and organizations that are working to, to combat the, um, the virus. We also, I think, at the you know at a, at a broader level, um, I blog at the Washington Post for the Monkey Cage blog, which is their political science research blog. And my colleague Kim Dion, who teaches at Smith, uh, we you know try to seize upon this as an opportunity to educate people about African geography, African yeah. travel, you know, all those kinds of issues you're talking about, but also about I mean this really nasty tradition of stigmatizing Africans and treating them as dirty and diseased, savage people. And I think that. You know, we we don't like to think of ourselves as a country where racism and prejudice can sometimes dictate public discourse or even public policy. But in a lot of these responses, I think you have to ask those questions about, you know, would this happen to to Scandinavian children? Would they would they be told to be kept home from school if there were some kind of flu going around Scandinavia? Um, I don't remember us when mad cow disease broke out in Great Britain you know, isolating people who traveled from, from the United Kingdom to the U.S. It's, there's something going on there, and I think that we're, we're trying to use this as an opportunity to get people to think about what they're doing and why they have this visceral, fearful reaction that's, that's way out of proportion to the actual risk of contracting the virus. And hopefully, you know, we can, we can move forward some of the discourse, help people to become aware of some of their own prejudices, so that they can start then to work on getting rid of them. Uh, well, Laura, thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. Well, thank you all for listening. And as I mentioned at the outset, uh, this is the second time I've spoken with Laura Say. The first was for my long-form conversation, long-form interview series in which I talked to foreign policy newsmakers or thought leaders about their lives and career. And Laura is one of the nation's premier Africanists, so I wanted to naturally find out how she became who she is, where she came from. And all of these conversations focus on how these individuals shaped their worldview from an early age, what influences, what events, what mentors helped inform how they came to understand the world. So it's a bit of an oral history, but also a bit of a a fun conversational podcast. So please check out the um, archives and you'll see lots of those conversations with people you've heard of and people that you may not have heard of. So subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and we'll see you next time. Bye.